Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to another edition of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, read me on Bleach Report, and follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker. Now, if you're listening to this, it means we finally solved the problem with our recording software. And by we, I mean me. And by solve the problem, I mean, well, we actually didn't, I didn't solve anything. I deleted some stuff. I reloaded some stuff. I've been having issues with the recording software, which we'd never had before, but it's been several days now. So uh, at this point, normally you would have heard Ryan Hollins with me on Friday. I let that go by the boards because of the recording issues, and then you normally hear me with Will Blackman on Monday, and since we never got to all the stuff that I wanted to get to on Friday and then Saturday, uh, I am now recording this solo, because there's a lot to get into, and I'm not sure this is actually going to work, (laughs) so I didn't want to hang up my colleagues in doing it. Anyway, once we got into the weekend, I decided I should record after the conclusion of Game 6 between the Bucks and the Raptors. I did, and that recording didn't take either. But now, hopefully, this one will. As you know, the Raptors are headed for the NBA Finals, having beaten the Bucks a fourth straight time after losing the first two games of the series. They now get the honor of being the latest victim of the Golden State Warriors. And I say that even though... As the weekend has progressed and I've looked at everything, and maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, I believe that the series could be more competitive than everyone is anticipating. It's hard for me to picture the Raptors actually winning, but a lot of people have the Warriors sweeping, and I'm not buying that. I'm just not. It hasn't been what they've been able to do. Obviously, they did it against the Blazers, uh, extenuating circumstances there. And I believe that the Raptors actually are better equipped to play against the Warriors at this stage than the Blazers were. And I've also spent the last few days at the Warriors practices. And I can tell you that it's unlikely that we will see Kevin Durant play again this season and thereby in a Warriors uniform. I watched him walk away from a press conference in his shower sandals, and he was walking gingerly. Uh, So, I mean, we can do the math. He strained his right calf on May 8th. 
I was told and reported when it happened that he could miss three to six weeks. The Warriors have since said the injury is more serious than they originally thought. That leads me to believe we're talking closer to six weeks than three weeks for a return. Now, May 29th will be the day before the finals begin. That is exactly three weeks since he had the injury, and KD hasn't even started any sort of basketball activities. The first six games will be played in the next two weeks or within a two-week span. So you can do the math. We don't get to... We're not going to get anywhere close to six weeks if that's what it takes. Now, I didn't see DeMarcus Cousins at practice, but the Warriors are saying that he is working out with the team and is closer to returning. That news would be more important if Kevon Looney weren't playing so damn well. I suppose with a Marcus All, a DeMarcus Cousins could potentially be valuable, but now that Looney is giving the Warriors some offense along with his D, I don't see Steve Kerr being in a hurry to give Looney's minutes to Cousins. Uh, one of the issues that DeMarcus has, as a lot of bigs do, is that he gets out of shape easily when he's not playing. And there's game shape, and then there's playoff game shape. And I just think it's going to be a hard road. So I, I'm either way, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not expecting to see either one of those guys in this series unless it gets to a game six or a game seven. Maybe a game seven and we might see Cousins. But I also am not convinced that this tilts the scales in, drum, in a dramatic way for the Raptors. All depends on how much Steve Kerr can continue to get out of his bench. If they have to play Andre Iguodala 40 minutes every night and he begins to have knee issues, then yes, potentially this could tilt. But... Uh, Steph Curry is down to a couple thin pieces of black tape on his injured left middle finger. I watched him shooting the ball. He looks very comfortable. I even saw him take a couple of uh, 12-foot left-handed runners, took them with ease, showed no discomfort, and he was making them. So, collectively, the, the biggest thing for me simply is that the Warriors are just so comfortable on this stage. And as they've demonstrated down the stretch here, end of the season and now through the playoffs, they understand exactly what they need to do in pressure situations. Everybody knows what their job is. They know what they want to go to. The Raptors are still in a period of discovery. They discovered through the course of the Bucs series that going ISO with Kawhi and just locking down on D and playing a slower pace was the way to win that series. And that's what teams do that are capable of getting to the finals. They're able to play more than one way. What we saw with the Bucks is that essentially they weren't. The, the, the Raptors found their Achilles heel, which was, and I said it from the beginning, make Giannis a decision maker. Make him a thinker. And it's easier said than done, but the Raptors were indeed able to do it, and it just changed everything. Now, what I, I really don't get is why anyone believes the Bucks would have offered a stiffer challenge to the Warriors in the finals. I'm going to attribute that to an overestimation of who and what Giannis Antetokounmpo is right now. I mean, is it because they swept the Pistons or beat the Celtics in five? Those are results, not reasons. The Bucs were a matchup nightmare for the Pistons, even with a healthy Blake Griffin, and obviously the Pistons didn't have one. 
And Bucks fans might like not like this, but the Celtics were their own worst enemy. They didn't come anywhere close to playing up to their capability. And I know probably people will say, well, Milwaukee was the reason for it. I don't think so. I think the Bucks simply took advantage of the fact that the Celtics didn't play their best basketball. Well, let's put it in another way. If the Raptors were able to take away Giannis Antetokounmpo's superpowers, what do you think the Warriors would have done? This is what I love about the playoffs, by the way. It is the ultimate peek into a team and a player's bag of tricks. A team and a player gets to find out what they don't have in a way that is harder to decipher during the regular season because there are so many variables that can allow a team or player to believe that they're better than they actually are. Even the first round of the playoffs, depending on the matchup, can be less than revealing. Celtics pay for Pacers... Perfect example. I'd throw Bucks Pistons in there too, but that's a little harder to uh, to argue since they then beat the Celtics. The Bucks did. In, in any case, by the time you get to the second round, chances are pretty high you're playing a team that can play more than one style and a coach who can adapt what his team does to the task at hand. Now, what we're finding out is that Giannis's bag was not as loaded as some might have thought. And that really shouldn't be surprising. He's still way more freakish athlete than he is basketball player. If anything, what bothers me is that what the Raptors did to Giannis, forcing him to go left, giving him that big Euro step left, but not letting him get back to his right hand because that's what he wants to do every time. Running a second defender at him as soon as he turned his back to the basket because you know he's going to try to spin back right, never spins left. Uh, and by getting a second defender there close enough, you can get him to pick up his dribble, and now now he's stuck. Now he's he's just looking to get rid of it. He hasn't it wasn't his plan to get there, stop, pivot, and pass. It was I'm pivoting and I'm going to finish at the rim. You take that away, and suddenly, as I said, he becomes a thinker, becomes a decision maker. My problem is the Boston Celtics were fully capable of doing the same thing, and simply didn't. This was a, a magnificent run for the Bucs. They should not have been in the conference finals. I'm sure at some point, the, right now, they're just thinking, we could have been in the finals. They shouldn't have got out of the second round. They should not have gotten past Boston. Which is how we got to find out that Brad Stevens' bag isn't quite as full as we thought either. Because he couldn't get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Morris to do what Toronto did which is essentially not let Giannis score in transition or go right, to put all their energy at the defensive end of the floor and then let their great one-on-one players go to town. They could not do that. They had the ability. I mean, Toronto's able to do it. Boston certainly should have been. Kyrie's every bit the handful one-on-one as Kawhi. But they were going to have to make it they're going to have to put all their energy at the defensive end. And they simply didn't. Didn't come close. Now, there's a lot of things that I think Giannis will learn from this experience. And I fully expect him to develop some solutions for when teams play him like this. But he wasn't going to find them over the course of this series. And there wasn't really anything that, that Mike Budenholzer could have done other than take the ball out of his hands more. And I don't know at this point if Milwaukee's really ready to take that extreme of a step, considering that he's a year away from free agency. And I know there's no indication that he wants to leave Milwaukee, but the Bucs can't presume anything. And 
taking the ball out of his hands and basically saying, hey, we, we can't win this playing through you, uh, it's a question mark as to how he would have taken that or how people who are angling to get him out of Milwaukee, maybe more important, would have utilized that in their whispers in his ear. Bottom line is he needs some sort of reliable step back J and a simple mid-range pull-up at the very least. Uh, by the way, remember when the Raptors, speaking of offense, remember when the Raptors moved on from coach of the year, Dwayne Casey, and promoted Nick Nurse, his assistant, because he was the offensive guru and they wanted him to have greater control of the team? Do you notice how Toronto won this series? They, they choked down the pace. They played straight iso ball, mostly with Kawhi, and that was it. There was nothing creative about this. Nothing. This was, this was right out of the Dwayne Casey book, at least what he did when he was in, in Toronto. The only difference is he had Kawhi Leonard instead of DeMar DeRozan. That's essentially it. I think the Raptors came into this series thinking they could play with the Bucks in an up-and-down game. And they found out otherwise, and good for them, good for Nick, that Nick Nurse, that they, they adjusted. They essentially just kind of stopped and looked at it and said, okay, we're, we're, not, we're not winning this way. What's our advantage? Our best player versus their best player, Giannis, in half-court sets. Yeah, that should work. And X's and O's comes down to this. The Raptors believed their best player could get them to the finals. You could see that game by game as it progressed. Once they won one, they were like, oh, this formula will work. And their best player believed he could get them to the finals. And it's not even a question of if the Bucs believe in Giannis. They don't believe in him like that because he hasn't played that kind of role all year. They believe he's great. They believe he's going to be a superstar, all that. But when you're in a game, you look over at your guy and you know instantly he can get it done or he can't get it done. Giannis clearly didn't know. Maybe he wanted to. I think he had all the want to you could possibly ask for. He just didn't have the know-how. And his teammates knew that too. And the confidence that a great player can and knows how to get it done, the feeling that gives his teammates is immeasurable. They're like, all I got to do is do my job and that guy will bring us home, that is inspiring. That is motivation. Now, I'm curious to see what they, the Raptors do against the Warriors. I don't think the ISO-heavy kind of offense and just choking down the game. I mean, possibly, but I don't know if that can work against the Warriors because it didn't work for the Rockets. Now, the Raptors bench is better than Houston's. Marcus Saul, Serge Ibaka certainly present more uh, problems than Clint Capella did. Uh, but I have a suspicion for as good as Pascal Siakam has been this year that his basketball IQ is going to be exposed. And my goodness, Danny Green put him on a milk carton. What happened to Danny Green? He, he's become Bruce Bowen, the early version that could defend, but couldn't shoot. Now, somebody did tell me that one of the reasons that the Spurs put Danny in the deal was because they knew that this was coming. They saw the end coming as far as what Green has been. And 
you can take that for what it's worth. It was a scout from another team, but he he sort of suggested that there were indications that Danny was ready to fall off. And he said something to me at the beginning of the year about where he was physically that now that I look back might have been the precursor or a harbinger to what we're what we're now seeing. But man, I mean, if he has a little revival here, that's another reason. But they probably need that. They need Danny Green to be hitting wide open threes from the corner. Got to. He, he can defend all he wants. He's got to be knocking down those shots. Uh, as for Giannis's walk-off statement at the post-game podium, well, before I get to that, let's hear the question that prompted Antetokounmpo, for those who may not know, uh, a woman, I don't know her name, asked a question, and it was Chris Middleton and Giannis up there. And she asked the question, and Giannis got up and left. And leaving Middleton there looking like, wait a minute, what's what's going on? Did somebody, did somebody pull a fire alarm? What's going on? Here's the question that was asked. Malika Andrews, ESPN. Uh, for both of you guys, I'm curious, you guys have talked a lot about how um, at this point, you know, sometimes it takes experience. I'm wondering if now that you have some of that experience, if you see more validity to that point or what you think about that now that you've gone through it. Now, the fact that Giannis might have been still emotional sitting there at the podium is understandable, but not acceptable. It's understandable because he's young and sorely disappointed. It's unacceptable because someone could have easily prepared him that no one with the books, Bucks pulled him aside and briefed him that he might be asked some tough questions and underscored the importance of maintaining his composure for those five, six, ten minutes that he was going to be up there, maybe reminding him of the damage LeBron did when he went to the finals and lost to the Mavericks and acted like a spoiled child. Somebody had done that. I, I guarantee you this could have been avoided. That's what's unacceptable. It didn't have to happen. And the question is, uh, look, that was a legitimate question. It was a little weird, but it's a, it's a legitimate question. I, on the face of it, it wasn't one of those things that, that Giannis should have taken personally. Sometimes it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. And I'd say being surly is still better than just walking off. So this was an avoidable situation. But kind of like the game he just played, he clearly wasn't prepared and didn't have the tools to deal with the situation. And maybe there's a, there's a tie-in between those two. Again, it, it kind of goes back to the question. Yeah, experience matters. Experience matters. Preparation matters too. One last, last thought on the finals. Steph Curry pointed this out to me the other day, that this will be the first time that the Warriors start on the road and will be playing somewhere other than Cleveland, which means they won't be in quite the same comfort zone. It's one of those things I hadn't really considered. Players do. It does matter. The hotel, the restaurants, kind of the routine, the, the arena. I mean, they've been in Cleveland the last four years, and they went there after being at home. So being in Toronto is going to be a little bit different. Being on the road is going to be a little bit different. What 
influence that has on the series. Uh, I don't want to make too much of it, but it's it's a little bit different. It's interesting. And, and this is one of the things, look, teams are ecosystems. This is one of the things people do not take into account. And I am more so than ever because I just had a conversation with Andre Iguodala and he kind of reminded me of this. Like the sensitivity of players, the chemistry, this, this family dynamic, it matters. All that matters. Uh, it's, uh, I talked to him for a piece that I'm going to be writing here in the next couple of days for Bleacher Report. So uh, look out for that. Now, I actually believe in some ways, I could at least make a case that starting on the road will be good for the Warriors because then they're less likely to come out too relaxed and maybe kick a game early that they otherwise would not or should not. We will see. By the way, I don't know if we're going to get more of this, but I kind of hope so. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. But did anybody notice Kawhi channeling Pop in his post-game interview? Um, Not so much after game six, but here he is after the game five win being interviewed by Kristen Ledlow. If a series doesn't start until somebody wins on the road, it started tonight, but how do you beat the Bucks four times in a row? I don't know. I haven't done it. Uh, we're taking it one game at a time, and, you know, I'm just excited that we got the win tonight. With one win away until a trip to the NBA Finals, what's this team's mentality with history on the line? I mean, I haven't even gotten the locker room yet. We just finished the game. But, uh, I mean, we wanted to come out here, get the win. We weathered the storm early, and... Uh, I'm going to see what we're going to be talking about in the locker room. Congratulations, Kawhi. That, I don't know what it will take to eliminate the Bucks because I've never done it. That is classic pop. Don't ask me a question where I have to hypothesize or speculate or project. I mean, I, I can just imagine pop being a player, uh, towel over his shoulder, still sweating, and being asked that question and giving the exact same answer. All of which is to say, we still don't know exactly what prompted Kawhi to force his way out of San Antonio, but it's safe to say it wasn't because of how Pop handled the media. Now, the other topic I want to get to concerns the NBA's release of its all-defensive and all-NBA selections uh, in the last week. And those awards are determined by a vote of some 125 members of the media, of which I am one and have been since 1993. Now, because of a few goofy votes and the massive money that is attached to the results, now the media voting on these awards is suddenly under the microscope. It's happened before, but it's happening again. Uh, I believe when the awards are announced is just as much of a problem or is contributing to the appearances because a lot of the current unhappiness with the selections is we're seeing guys in the playoffs who weren't necessarily recognized for regular season awards. And look, we wouldn't be having that conversation, I don't think, or as much if the awards were announced right after the regular season rather than midway through the conference finals. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, we still might have had Clay Thompson reacting to the news from a reporter that he hadn't been selected for an all-NBA team, regardless of when he was asked it. For those who may not know, Thompson, the Warrior shooting guard, is up for a Supermax contract this summer. And because he was not selected to one of the three five-man all-NBA teams, by league salary cap rules, he can only sign for $190 million over five years instead of 220. And those numbers are estimates because the league has yet to release exactly what the salary cap for next season will be. And Supermax contracts are based off the overall number. It's 35% of the total salary cap. Salary cap is based on revenue generated this season and so they haven't done all their accounting that's why they don't have the number quite yet clay apparently had heard had not heard that the all nba teams were released and he certainly wasn't aware that he had not been named to one so here's his response to reporters when he got the news at a post practice press conference that the teams were out and he was not on one. You nearly made the All-NBA team, which would have elevated your potential. Oh, I did? They yeah. already came out? Yeah, it came out today. You were like uh, right behind Beal. Who got Or no, no, right behind. Who got third team? Kemba. Kemba got it. Uh, you were a couple. I mean, that's cool and all, but like, when you go to five straight finals, I, I, I respect those guys, but holy, when you go to five straight, I mean, it takes more than just a couple of NBA guys. It's like an all-time team, but whatever. That's not. A, I'd rather win a championship than be 13 all NBA. So it's all good. Do you, do you not like that, that that affects potential contract statuses? You know, all NBA stuff because that would have elevated yeah. you to another. It's, it is what it is. You know, I can't control it. Uh, do I think there's that many guards better than me in the league? No, but. That's the reason why we're still playing, so I don't even want to get into it, honestly. Clay, how are you able to roll that off your back, given, I mean, there's money implications? Rings. Now, I'm fairly certain that Clay's annoyance, I know how it was advertised. A lot of people put out, it was cute and eye-catching to say, this is the look and the sound of somebody who just learned that they lost $30 million. Uh, Look, I get it as a hook but I don't think it's accurate by any stretch. I'm certain that Clay's annoyance was not over the $30 million as much as the suggestion that he's not among the league's top six guards. If he indeed knows that voters must select two guards, two forwards, and a center to each of the three teams, which means that there's only six guards among the 15. I'm not sure that he knows that, I'm not sure that he knew what was riding on being on an all-NBA team. It's well known by anyone in or around the Warriors that Clay lives in his own bubble. I will say it's painfully outdated to view the game through the old-fashioned lens of two guards, two forwards, and a center. That, that to me, is is the greater issue here since there is so much money at stake, especially since there's so much money at stake. We shouldn't be doing it anyway, We've gotten away from it from in, in all-star voting. It's even more important that we get away from it here. 
Because if being selected is going to be tied to the candidacy for a Supermax contract, then voters, whoever they are, should be allowed to pick the top 15 players. And you can put five on each of three tiers if need be. That's fine. But you're going to have some center in this case, some center become eligible for a Supermax contract when he's happens to play a position that is not loaded with talent at this point because of the way the game's played. And meanwhile, the guy who has to play against fiercer competition, like a Clay Thompson, like a Bradley Beal, they're not eligible for a Supermax contract simply because, well, because we only pick two guards <laughs> or six guards in total. I can tell you right now that there were not three centers in the league this year that I thought were no-brainer Supermax guys. Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, and I'm not even that big of a Jokic fan, but I can't deny he's Supermax worthy at his position. But finding that third guy, it was it was a challenge. Anthony Davis is listed as a center, but he's not any more a center than Carl Anthony Towns is. Towns ended up being my pick for the third team. They technically play the position at times, but but that's it. And to be honest, I mean, do we really have traditional centers anymore? Not really. Things are so interchangeable now. There's so much switching on defense. And offensively, the teams are so small that you got small forwards playing power forward, power forward playing center. Technically. And the drive and kick system kind of waters down the uniqueness of the center position as much as any other position on the floor. If we're really going traditional center, nobody said we have to, but if we're going traditional center, Andre Drummond has the potential to be a super max center, but he's going to have to continue to evolve. He's not there yet. Rudy Gobert, who ended up being the uh, all-NBA third-team center, he's a great defensive center. But he has too many offensive limitations to make my all-NBA list, much less my super max worthy one. And I, look, I didn't pick guys based on whether they're worthy of super max contracts. We're working backwards here a little bit. And I know that there are plenty of guys who will get super max contracts. But that doesn't mean they're worthy of them in that context. There's technically qualifying for the Supermax, and then there's being what I consider a genuine Supermax-worthy player, which means the money that a team is investing, that much money that a team is investing in you, you're capable of making good on it. And that has to go beyond what your numbers are. You have to make the game easier for other guys. You can't just get your numbers. You have to be the reason that other guys' numbers rise. And Gobert, certainly at the defensive end, is, is that. He makes the game easier for the Jazz's perimeter players. No question about it. But in the same way, he needs help at the offensive end. He's not, you're not going to hand him the ball and just let him go to work, ever, in order to cre- create something for somebody else, or quite honestly, even for himself. Very rarely is that going to happen. He needs to be set up. But to me, he's just not a super max guy. And look, I think it was the Utah Jazz Papers, if the papers in Salt Lake City, 
were I saw headlines. So Gobert is eligible for the Supermax. Should the Jazz give it to him? <laughs> Hell no. Hell no. There's no way he can make good on that. Major mistake. Put it this way. Nobody else has given it to him. By the way, uh, there are a number of ways that players can qualify for a Supermax deal. It's selected to the All-NBA team or teams uh, the year that they're eligible for free agency or in both of the previous two years. Uh, they're named Defensive Player of the Year, the year of their free agency, or in both of the previous two years. Or they're named League MVP in any of the three seasons leading up to their their free agency. So, pretty high bar. Then again, they're getting paid 35% of the salary with 8% increases every year, regardless of what happens to the cap, and they can't be traded their first year under the deal. What's really scary is, for me, as I see it, the prospect of having to sign two Supermax guys. Fans kind of just immediately, yeah, we'll just offer them the Supermax. The Warriors are going to be there uh, if they're going to keep Clay. Everybody's like, got to keep him the suit. Got to keep him. We're going to say, we're going to give him the Supermax. Okay, give him the Supermax. That means now that 70% of your salary cap is already spent. You got 30% to spend on the remaining 10, 11 players. Good luck building a championship caliber team under those circumstances, especially a team like the Warriors, who uh, it, it was minimized this year and last year, but they're still a unique collection of talent. All right, and for the record, Clay did make my all-NBA third team. Kemba Walker, who took a spot on the official team, did not get my vote. And I understand the dilemma in voting, even though I just got a text from a scout complaining that Kemba made it over not just Clay but Drew Holiday as well. Uh, so there are a lot of people out there that don't want to disrespect Kemba, but at the same time, they're looking at him saying, this ain't a Supermax guy. Now, Kemba had to do more for the Hornets than Clay has ever had to do for the Warriors. That's a fact. But what Kemba did resulted in a losing record and a trip to the lottery. They were in the hunt for a playoff spot. They still didn't make it. It's hard for me to make a case for any player being one of the best 15 players in the league if he can't get his team to the playoffs. And I'm reasonably reasonably confident Clay could. At the very least, put up the offensive numbers Kemba did, and he's a way better defender. I can do more things with Clay at the offensive end. He's a great post-up, maybe the best post-up two-guard in the league at this point. Obviously, catch and shoot. He's better off the dribble than he's given credit for. I wouldn't want, I don't see him a playmaker per se, but I don't need a great point guard for him to average 25 a game. And defensively, he can do a lot for me. I mean, look, you just saw Kawhi Leonard playing ISO. He doesn't blow by guys. He uses his size and his strength. He's stronger than Clay, no doubt about it. And then defensively, he locks down. Clay's not Kawhi. I'm not putting him in that camp. But he gives you if you if you saw how valuable Kawhi's game was, Clay can give you a version of that. Kemba cannot. 
And the bottom line is sometimes you just have to step back, put away the statistics, and assess who, uh, assess who a player is and what he does and ask yourself in comparison to another player, who's the better player? And I know that the award is for play that season. Players don't always play up to the full capability. But I also find it a miscarriage to reward a player simply because he had better statistics. Good players on bad teams frequently put up elite player numbers, especially with how the game is played today. Speaking of that, I feel as if we all need to reset our benchmarks for exceptional productivity. Being a 20 and 10 guy once upon a time meant something. It, it no longer does. Double doubles, triple doubles, they're infinitely easier to rack up. All you need is a certain degree of freedom and a certain number of minutes on the floor. So, for those who may not have been aware, uh, my first team, All-NBA, was Paul George, Giannis, Joel Embiid, James Harden, and Steph Curry. Second team, Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, Jokic, Kyrie Irving, Damian Lillard. Third team, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Carl Anthony Towns, Russell Westbrook, and Klay Thompson. And as I look at the results, the teams I put players on, you know, first, second, or third, differs from what the results were. But other than Clay for Kemba and Towns for Gobert, the guys that I thought merited all NBA honors received them. So, look, there were a couple of oversights in my mind, but not so gross that it's we need to take the, the, the voting out of the media's hands. And I don't say this because it's... I mean, look, in some ways it's a headache, but uh, I'm not protecting my turf here. I just look around. What do you want, coaches? Coaches <laughs> coaches play for teams. If you think they don't have a vested interest, they're not going to play favorites. Players, same thing. So you want to mix up the vote? I'm, I'm good with that. But the idea that the, the media is getting it wrong. And I look, New York Times doesn't allow their staff to vote on these things. And former editor of mine, Bud Geraci from the San Jose Mercury News uh, referenced this, that somehow this uh, there's potential for favoritism or that the media shouldn't be voting on something like this. Because what? This is, this is my issue with that whole idea. You either believe in my integrity or you don't. If you believe that I'm capable of playing favorites or trying to utilize a vote to get preferential treatment from a player or an agent, then you, I shouldn't be working for you. If you have that suspicion of me that that's the way I would operate or might operate, then I shouldn't be working for you. And you know, are guys going to be tempted? I just... I think more highly of the people that I know that are reporters. We do have integrity. We do care. We try to get it right. We try to be fair. Yes, there's some guys out there that are guys and women who do utilize. Um, I mean, look, it's a relationship business. Every business is. But the ability to draw the line and say, hey, look, we can have a relationship. We can talk. We can try to help each other out in in ways, but not this. This this is 
this is my judgment of of who plays and how they play. I can't give this one away. I, I just can't imagine it. Uh, by the way, since all the all defensive teams also raised a certain amount of debate, my selections for those were first team: Paul George, Giannis, Gobert, Marcus Smart, Drew Holiday. Second team: PJ Tucker, Draymond Green, Joel Embiid, Patrick Beverly, and Clay Thompson. Now. Two of my picks did not make all defensive honors at all. And I'm shocked that these are the two. Patrick Beverly and P.J. Tucker. They lost out to to Kawhi and Eric Bledsoe. Neither of whom, obviously, I voted for. And Kawhi is a great defender. He's demonstrating that now. But he he didn't demonstrate that during the regular season. So that's where I'm not going to go on reputation. And I'm not going to go with the anticipation that I think he would play better in the playoffs. Sure. If I had weighed that, if I had just weighed who's capable of being the best defender, then Kawhi would have to be on there. But that's not the way he played during the regular season. So, given a chance, I wouldn't change anything. And my problem with some of the complaints being raised by current and former players, some of whom I consider friends, Jared Dudley, Olden Polonese, These are regular season awards, and the entire season matters. The playoffs do not. Sure, the playoffs are the truest measure of a player. But that's not what we take into account when we vote. It's what he does in the regular season. Players were uh, The Warriors were not a very good defensive team for a good part of the season, which is why there was no way I could put Clay and Draymond on my first all-defensive team, even though I believe they are two of the best five defensive players in the league. I mean, I... Uh, Drew Holiday, on the other hand, uh, look, Kawhi was not as good for stretches this season. That's why I didn't put him on there. Drew Holiday, on the other hand, was a defensive beast all season, and I'm not going to hold it against him that his team didn't do well and collectively didn't always defend at a high level. In fact, I give him extra credit because he was amazingly effective for someone on an island without a rim protector behind him. Julius Randle does not qualify as a rim protector. So, nor do I like Olden's idea that the award should be voted on after the season and playoffs should count. That's just crazy talk. Because the possibility of being swayed by postseason performances is far too great. Again, Drew should be... It sounds like I'm, I'm campaigning for Drew Holiday. I like him, but it's nothing. Just he's a good example of everything that I'm talking about here. Drew shouldn't be penalized because he played on a bad team, didn't make the playoffs. Or Beverly, because his team only made it to the first round. And trust me, right now, people are looking at Kyle Lowry's defense in a different, more kindly light right now than they did during the regular season. The games of Pascal Siakam, Malcolm Brogdon, same thing. So what I'd like is that these awards were announced right after the season, we get rid of the positions, uh, and I think that would solve a lot of the problems. You know what else would have solved the problem? If Draymond Green had played this way all year, then I could have made him my third-team All-NBA center instead of Towns, and I would have felt much better about that. But Green didn't, so I had to figure out who's next best. By the way, I just made an appearance. I'm not name-dropping here. Um, 
This is the last thing I want to get to. I just made an appearance with Grant Hill at the Players' Tribune in New York City for the Sports PR Summit. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about that event, something I've been uh, part of for the last seven years, it's been around for seven years, go to sportsprsummit.com and check it out. Uh, in any event, uh, Grant mentioned the Rookie of the Year race. He, was, he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to the audience. Is sort of needling me because he knows I have a vote. And he was pointing out that uh, his guy, Trey Young, Hill's uh, part owner of the, the Hawks and vice chairman of the team, uh, he was pointing out that Trey is more than likely finishing second to Luka Doncic from, from the Mavs. And just wondered why that was happening when his rookie year, Grant's rookie year, he was co-rookie with Jason Kidd even though Grant had a really fast start and kids struggled early, but then finished with a bang and, and they wound up as co-rookies. And Grant said he was fine with that, but he wondered why Trey wasn't being judged along the same lines, getting the same sort of appreciation or respect. I didn't say it then, but I'll say it now. It's because Luca never tailed off. Luca was good from beginning to end. He had some free throw issues, but he never had a dramatic fall off. And obviously Trey came out of the gate and struggled mightily. Now what's interesting is I went back and I looked at Grant's rookie year. And for the most part, he was Luka Doncic. I mean, he started strong. He never really fell off. Not a game here or there, but he was good all the way through. So... I'm wondering now whether the real argument that Grant was making, he was too much of a gentleman to say or might have looked too self-serving. But I think the argument he was making was, look, if I'm going to be robbed by Jay Kidd and not getting it to myself, at least let Trey perpetrate the same crime on Luca. I think that's what he was saying. Next time I see him, I'll ask. All right. That does it for this episode of Buker Friendless. By the way, we have reached our goal of ratings and we will have our drawing for the bag of prizes. Uh, we'd still love to hear from you though. So wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes or wherever, feel free to rate us and then screenshot the rating to at Buker Friends. If you do that, uh, you'll be potentially eligible for this prize if we haven't given it away already uh, or you will certainly be eligible for the next one. In the meantime, as always, Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.